Is that what I'm saying? Rough trade radio. 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 Hello and welcome back to the Rough Trade Podcast. This week I sat down with the lovely Phil Taggart on his new book, Slacker's Guide to the Music Industry, an exceptionally great guide to every corner of the wild, wonderful, but often overwhelming world of the music business. Also coming up as ever, some great new music and also George left us a sensational new voicemail. I really, really must try and get to the phone next week. Sorry, George. Um, But let's kick off episode 62 with a new single and for me this totally fits the bill. It's the new track from Liam Gallagher and it's called Shockwave.
that was Liam Gallagher and Shockwave, and I believe it signals a forthcoming new solo record, which is good news if you're me. But what are we all feeling about Liam Gallagher these days? I feel like he's really popular, but also maybe he's a bit Marmite. Um, but yeah, answers to Emily at roughtrade.com if you've got an opinion on that. The new single is available on 7inch and it's available online and in store now if you're a fan or if you're curious. Um, but next up are new albums for this week. There are far too many to mention, but highlights include Vanishing Twin, of course, one of our albums of the month for June. The debut album from Young Husband is out. It's brilliant. Um, Rough Trade NYC are loving the new former The Only Ones frontman Pete Perrett's new solo record. That's their album of the week this week. But I'm going to play one from the new Steph Chura album um, for fans of the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, PJ Harvey and also the Breeders. It's produced by Cassie Headrest, which is pretty great credits all round. And it's a wild, thrilling and angsty ride. It's called Midnight. We have it on Rough Trade exclusive blue vinyl. And the track I'm going to play is called Method Man, as requested by Rough Trade's very own Paddy Scott. He is a method man. Tolkien can Ripping up a box of books He said I'll never understand
that was Steph Jura. Next up, and the third album from Aurora, the Norwegian singer-songwriter who has risen to international superstardom with her quirky stage presence and haunting vocal charm. Uh, Chemical Brothers fans might also recognise her from No Geography's opener Eve of Destruction, which is out earlier this year. Aurora has just completed three amazing Rough Trade UK in-stores, which were pretty much sellout across the board, I think, and her fans are seriously some of the most dedicated that we have witnessed. Um, And rightly so, her new album, Different Kind of Human, Step 2, is big and beautiful and focuses on the ecological crisis, something we can all universally relate to, I think. So yeah, you can grab the album on blue vinyl and check out this track from it. It's called The River. Hold your hands on to your chest and tell me what you
and the river and from one river to another as we head to New York's River to River Festival which played host to Sonic Youth's now iconic set back in 2008. It's just been made available on vinyl and bloody great it is too. So yeah, here's Bull in the Heather live from Battery Park. Five to one time now, and I had an extensive chat with BBC Radio 1's Phil Taggart on his new book, Slacker's Guide to the Music Industry. Um, This is a topic that I've wanted to go into a bit more on the podcast for quite a while now. So having Phil write this book couldn't really have been more perfect. Yeah, I really enjoyed this. So here we go.
So Phil Taggart, welcome to the Rough Trade podcast. Thank you so much for bringing me into your makeshift studio. <laughs> I know, right? I'm glad you're enjoying it. It's the Rough Trade way, as we discussed just before you sat down. It's got to be a bit rough and ready. Um, but congratulations on your new book, Slacker's Guide to the Music Industry. So, so excited to be stocking it at Rough Trade. Um, I've got to say it's an absolutely brilliant read. And I think it's not only for budding musicians. I think if you're interested in music at all, it's just such an interesting book mm-hmm. to read and you learn so much from it. Um, and I can't really think of anything immediately out there that is similar to it, that is literally so honest mm-hmm. and covers so much. And it's just this kind of complete one-stop shop for anyone who's interested in starting a music career. Um, especially probably for young people, which is so important, giving them some support. I wondered how how long you've been thinking about creating this book. Has it been something that's been a long time coming or did you just kind of one day just wake up and think, okay, I'm going to write a book, a I, guide? I guess that the idea for writing the book maybe is only about three or four years old but okay. like the actual gestation of the book is probably about like 16 years old because wow, okay. like playing in bands like like I did from about 14 onwards I was dying for anything that would give me any sort of um, idea of what the flip I was meant to do with um, with my music like there, there was a book out there called the unsigned guide okay. that i remember our band used to have it was basically like the yellow pages but <laughs> but but for like labels and managers and stuff like that and i remember printing out 200 eps like uh, cd eps of our band and going through it and like marking off the people that i was like okay right we'll send we'll send it to them we'll send it to them um <laughs> and like you know trying to like color in the the um letters to make it stand out a little bit yeah. put loads of effort yeah. into it and sent the 200 out and um i got one message back and it was from tom hingley from the Inspiral carpets who had a label in manchester okay. and he was like all right mate you've uh sent this out but uh we had to go to the post office and pay an extra 30p to get it because oh, i didn't put, <laughs> didn't put enough stamps on it and oh, so yeah. There's about 199 that have been pulped or, or rotting away somewhere in the Royal Mail at the minute. Um, but like, you, there's just, there was no information out there. And if there was, it was kind of scattered around the internet. And you were basically trying to like beg, steal and borrow information of your friends that were maybe mm. in bands as well. And like their information is almost as good as yours. Yeah. Um. So I started going to panels and you know, workshops and things like that, like, you know, like government led things, council led things. And I find them really dull and I find them really boring and, mm. and, and very nine times out of 10 uninspiring. Yeah. You'd be sitting there in front in this room when you're like 17 and all you want to do is like be on the front page of enemy <laughs> and you're sitting there and you're listening to these people who've like never really had that much success either tell you what to do with your career. And yeah. you're just like, going, what the fuck is going on here? Like, yeah. like, like seriously. Um, so having gone through the, the band thing and that, that finishing up and getting into radio and starting a DIY label and all the rest of it, I find myself at this point where I was like, God, I've got access to like really good people, whether it's like industry people, like, um, bookers or labels or, uh, managers or designers or like whatever, but also like the bands have gone and done it too. Mm. So I was like, right, I need to join these dots. Um, cause I was getting loads of messages from bands going, what do we do now? I might have to give them the first play or something like that. And yeah. then they'd be like, oh, well, do we hire a radio plugger? Um, like, how do we book a tour? And I'm just like, oh, God, I don't know all this <laughs> stuff. Like, I know little tiny bits and pieces, but not enough to, like, passably go, this is what you do. Yeah. Um. So I kind of, like, roped 
everybody else in. I was going to start doing it as a little pamphlet. And then the more I started doing it, the more I started enjoying it. I think the first interview I did was with Simon Neal from Biffy Clyro. And I wanged on with him for about an hour <laughs> as he drained three Moscow mules in the Ace <laughs> Hotel in, in, in London. And he rolled me a cigarette at the end of it as well. So thanks to Simon for that. Like you can't, you can't accuse him of not being signed. Um, so I enjoyed that process. So I, I ended up doing 70 interviews with people and then compiling it together. Because it does say on the front of it, Phil Taggart's Slacker Guide to the Music Industry. Mm. But I do have to point out quite quite often that I don't know shit, but <laughs> but, but but the people in the book do. Yeah. So I'm just like simply the the glue that sort of like yeah. pulls it all together. Research man. Yeah, research man. Is that, yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask you actually on that, because there's so many contributors, as you say, from artists, but also photographers and people who create artwork and things like that. So did you have, you said it was going to start off as a pamphlet. Did you have sort of a broad kind of structure of the kind of topics or chapters you wanted to feature and did that just grow the more you spoke to people yeah do you know like, it, like as soon as it, it, like really early on as soon as I started writing a little bit I was like right okay this is a book this is yeah. a book so like yeah. I didn't go through much uh, period sort of making the pamphlet I was like okay so I sat down and I wrote down the 20 chapters that I was just like I was constantly writing down right what do people need to know I think it started off about 17 chapters and then I was like how can I write a book about the music industry in 2019 and not do a chapter on mental health? Mm. How can I not do a chapter on funding? Um, so I sent that questionnaires to bands, like teenage bands all around the, the country. And I was like, what do you want to know? Like, what do you need to know? Like, what are the questions that oh, you, wow. you have? Um, bands like, I think out of them all, I think Brand New Friend are probably the ones that are doing, mm -hmm. doing the best. And um, I mean, and I was like, who do you want to hear from as well? And it's really weird. Most of the people that came back also they wanted to hear from Van McCann from Catfish and the Bottle Men, <laughs> who politely declined to be in the book. Uh -huh. um, but uh, a lot of it was to do with money. Like, you know, it's really expensive being in yeah. a band. Like, you know, it's, it's a lot less expensive being a DJ, you know, but it's even then it's still expensive as well. But mm. like buying gear, carting gear about. So it's like, right, I need to do something on funding. I need to like like write a little bit about how you can sort of make the best of having no money and uh yeah i mean i mean we saved up when i was in a band we saved up our dinner money we we were like three emaciated catholic boys in ireland with one fat drummer because <laughs> we saved up our our dinner money to buy him a drum kit oh, <laughs> oh gosh money is such an important part of it i think you say in the book that that's probably the thing that people get most nervous about and that yeah. they struggle with. You, I guess you have to be so smart. It's difficult to talk about as well because yeah. like, people don't like talking about money. Like, and like, I don't necessarily love talking about money either. Like, you know, as we do this, we're in central London. I just walk past a lot of like high flying um, businessmen. I'm, like, mm. I'm sure they love talking about money, mm. but like, it's almost feels like the word money is a dirty word when it's used around creativity. Yeah. And um, in, in any sort of shape or form when it comes to the arts. Like, I mean, music is so devalued these days. Oh, we'll give you exposure. Mm. Like, go fuck yourself. Mm. Like, exposure doesn't pay my bills. Exposure doesn't, like, you know, um, buy my food or whatever. So, like, it's very, even from the very, very beginning, you have to get paid something. Even if it's a token, like, 10 quid, 20 yeah. quid, 30 quid, like, you have to sort of make sure you're not doing it for free. Because one thing I got really pissed off about, and I actually had to, like, my editor had to edit it down because I think I went on a an incredibly long and boisterous rant about the pay-to-play schemes, which don't really seem to happen as much anymore because 
there seems to be more decent people in the music industry, but there's a lot of promoters out there that will take advantage of young bands, knowing that they'll bring in 30 or 40 people yeah. and say, look, listen, if you don't bring in those people, you have to pay to play. And yeah. you're like, going, no, this, we're selling your beer, my friend. So yeah. this isn't happening. And I guess it's having that knowledge to say, hang on a minute. Yeah. Or having that confidence or, you know, just to be bold and kind of like really fight for your side. Exactly. And it's just, it's telling the stories of bands like Will Fallis and, and Enter Shikari and people like Charlie XEX, like people that you might look at going, oh, they, they've never struggled a day in their life. Mm. And you're like, well, they have because yeah. they started at the same place that you did with, with your music as well. It's just that they've weathered the storm, had some good fortune and wrote some great music. Yeah. I think there's some really interesting commentary on the DIY scene in the book. Um, I guess maybe to outsiders, it's kind of perceived as this kind of sexy method of creating music when actually it's really, really hard yeah. work. Do you think, though, the DIY scene's a bit responsible for that nervousness about talking about money? Do you think some people think that DIY artists get by and don't really get paid and they just become successful because they're so creative and brilliant? Yeah, look, the, the people look at DIY as some sort of like like romantic endeavor that you're only you're only doing it for the process. And like the thing is, if you're making music, you should only be doing it for the process. But at the same time, if it's your full time job, then you need to get paid for it and you mm. need to be looked after as well. I always like the idea of these artists like like Skepta and, and Stormzy and Chance the Rapper and, and people like that who would like, you know, go to pains of saying we're DIY to the core and like, you know, slap the chest. Yeah. Um, but they've got like, you know, managers, PR t- uh, teams. They've got like distribution labels that they put all of their music out. Like the only DIY about them is that they don't have some guy in a white suit or yeah. in, in a suit sitting above them going, this is what you should do. Maybe you should change that chorus or whatever. Like, to be DIY means that you're still in control of everything that you've got, but you, you've put the team together yourself and you're paying everybody as well. Mm, mm. It's very difficult to do a DIY. Like, I mean, my label is like, should if you looked up break even in the dictionary, it would be a picture <laughs> of my, my label in it. It <laughs> doesn't particularly lose any money, but doesn't particularly earn any money either. Yeah. <laughs> and that's like, that's completely DIY. But we've got f- f- help with people distributors like the orchard and yeah and i guess it's, like that. it's DIY is just not doing it yourself like no. DIY is just being in control of your own shit yeah and also i think having that i think little sims mentioned she just had this really long-term vision and she kind of got this guy who is her manager her tour booker like assistant everything but she foresaw that eventually they'd be able to fund having a person for each of those things absolutely like like Little Sims' new album's going to win the Mercury, right, this year. Do you think? Like, yeah, of course it will. Okay. Um, and do you think that her third album would have won the Mercury if she was on, like, a, a major label? Major labels would not know what to do with somebody like Little Sims. Like, she is the boss. Mm. You can't tell the boss what to do. Like, like I can't imagine Little Sims featuring on a Stefflon Don track or Little Sims, like, featuring on... I don't know, just like whatever token producer is like really big at the minute. She's somebody who marches to the beat of her own drum. So like if she had assigned to a major label, as she said in the book, she would have been finished by now. And artists like that have to look after themselves and have to be DIY, you know? Yeah, 100%. I think she's obviously just above anything else, really knows who she is as an artist, as a performer, as a businesswoman. And obviously all that combined... Just and she stresses about it as well. Like, like she doesn't make it sound easy either. Like she's no. talking about how she has to be 
so across being in a, a business room and being able to or in a business meeting and being able to like hold her own the mm-hmm. same way she has to when she's in the studio laying down tracks yeah like if you think about it right it's really insane if because if you, like, whatever job it is you do right you're normally like you just do that one job and then that's it but when you're like a diy artist you have to be everything to everybody yeah. and that's like number one exhausting and number two is really hard to yeah to have those skills in every different department. Yeah, 100%. Do you think on the flip side then, major labels, I suppose, give you this cushion financially at least for a little while and doing all those various bits and pieces that you kind of feel are so overwhelming at the beginning. Do you think that they somehow don't really let on to the reality of what being an artist and putting out a record and building a career is actually like? And you think if you maybe don't succeed in a major labels kind of idea of success that the fallout from that is really quite devastating to, to artists. I think it used to be like the fact if, if you if you were in a major label and you got dumped off the major label, then everybody would be like, oh, isn't that mm. such a shame your career's over? It's it's so not that way anymore. And like, I don't want to particularly demonize major labels either. Like it, it's very easy to, to, to paint them as the bad guy. But like when, when it comes to releasing certain types of artists, they're by far the best at it like yeah like independent labels very rarely breed pop stars like maybe like like the you get the odd xl or the odd rough trader the odd pmr record mm. or like or records that'll get a number one album or whatever but like that's their job their job yeah. is like like selling units as they would say q1 has been incredible but like <laughs> so like bands say bands that like have built a massive fan base on the budget of a major record label like say a band like Tudor Cinema Club, their new album's coming out on their own label. Yeah. They were on a major label for for like the last couple of records. They built a massive fan base off that. Like they had such a market, big, big, big market and budget, like used everything that. Now they're on their fourth album. They're as popular as they've ever been. And they've got that fan base and they stand to make like have more of a favorable deal mm. I would imagine like I don't know I'm not in the background or know anything just because yeah. I'm Northern Irish doesn't mean I know <laughs> um, but I, I would I would assume that they would be in a very very financially favorable place right now because a lot of people have done that like even like Kate Nash or somebody like that I was chatting to her in my podcast and we were talking about how she built her fan base on the majors and you know it, it didn't end up that well for her but like mm. it really has now because she's now DIY and that fan base is carried over yeah so like yeah. you know there are benefits to actually go going on a major and then leaving it yeah i think in a way yeah i think that leads on quite nicely to this discussion about success which i think comes up in is it the last chapter in your book certainly about mental health and i think nadine shah has some really interesting comments on it yeah because for me personally i think success is something that is so subjective i think it's such a personal thing there's this idea that you know if you get a top 10 album that is the pinnacle of success as a music artist yeah. and it's just not true and I think the message to young people or anyone starting out should be that success is individual to you and there's so many different levels of it um, do you think that's a really important message do you think that is broadcast enough in this industry I think like, it, like if you start out at something right and you, you're sitting on the sofa and you're watching like Glastonbury or whatever and you're like right well I want to be up on that stage there's so many people millions of people around the world watching it at the same time as you thinking the exact same thing mm. and maybe one of those millions of people will, will actually do it and the one person that actually did do it 
was the person that conquered small goals like consistently for a long time. So like it's probably better to look at short term success rather than long term success. Like the f- first bit of success that you would have is putting a band together and mm. like actually strumming something in time. You know, the yeah. next success would be having a gig, releasing an EP and, and taking it small and incrementally. Because if you are sitting at your second practice and you're like going, why have we not got like a five album record deal for five million pounds? And you're just like, yeah. going, well, what do you need to do to get there? Yeah. Like there's a lot of people talk about if you put it out into the universe, then it will happen. But those people who talk about that, who are successful, like Oprah or like Conor McGregor, those are the people that have worked their ass off in every little bit, like yeah. 23 hours a day going and doing all that and have got there. But like, they, <laughs> I think a lot of people think there's this idea where you can just go, I'm going to be Superman. Yeah. I'm going to be Superman. <laughs> yeah. And then you just like, you open a Coke, bag of crisps and you sit in the sofa and you're just waiting for it to yeah, happen. Yeah, you click publish to SoundCloud yeah. and then it's just going to happen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like you can do that. But like this, the successes that you get is you should definitely celebrate as well. Like once, once you've like hit one thing, you should be really happy with yourself. Yeah. And then look at what the next thing is as well. But I think one of the almost most crucial things of all of that is people work so hard to get there and people mm. overwork and burn themselves out like mm. I completely and utterly burnt myself out with the book tour and writing the book and all the rest of it like I was like I, I was in my bed for like three days just lying there because I was just so stressed <laughs> with everything and then yeah. afterwards I was like okay I'm better now and then got sick for a week oh, afterwards so I was just like right okay I'm not taking my own advice here yeah. I've written about it and I'm just so I was just like right I've overworked myself yeah and that, that happens to people as well when you when you work at something you love you tend to work at it probably harder yeah and you know the sort of cutoff point doesn't really exist no especially in music as well yeah it's like when you put an album out isn't it you feel like you've done all the hard work to get to the point to release it but then actually the hard work's got to start again because yeah, you've, you've got, got to promote tour it, it and promote it, it yeah. and, and go through all of the, the mill yeah so mm. it's just grueling completely grueling and i guess you have to be very upfront that that is what you're going to have to deal with if you want to give it a real go yeah exactly but i think like yeah, it's it's difficult. Like I, w- I was like interviewing Lewis Capaldi a couple of months ago, and I was just saying to my producer after I interviewed him, I was like, "Going, I feel like that guy's gonna burn himself out." Mm. Do you know? Because he he's everywhere. Yeah, he's absolutely everywhere. Oh, yeah. I just wanted to like almost like kidnap him, put him in the back <laughs> of a car, and just drive him off to a bench somewhere by a yeah. field, and just go, just relax. Yeah, just, just enjoy yourself. You know, just take take a wee minute to yourself. Yeah. But he looks like he's absolutely flying. But you can see, like everybody can see, it has a like a friend that works too hard. You can you can kind of like see the nervous buzz. And yeah. Just like you just want to almost turn around to them and just go, dude, if you've got enough money, go on a holiday. If you don't, go and lie in bed and watch Netflix. Yeah. yeah just take a break. <laughs> yeah. I can't wait. I'm going on a holiday in three weeks. I'm just like, yes. <laughs> what do you think is the best piece of advice that you discovered when researching this book? Maybe aside from the Frank Turner pizza feast thing, um, which is. Which is very cool, which is very clever. I enjoyed that bit. The the best piece of advice that I was given in the book. It's so weird because there's 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 so many different different parts. Actually, one one of the ones that it doesn't really apply to to me because I was never much of a songwriter. But I I thought that Ian Archer's advice in in the chapter on songwriting, I think it's chapter four. Um, he talks about songwriting way more methodically. I think we've all got this sort of vision that, that every single song that you write is divine intervention and that like a, a lightning bolt from the sky will come down and hit you in the head and you'll mm. be able to like pen this absolute classic. 
Um, and it's something that people who've read the book have come back to me about and have, have mentioned that quote um, because it's meant a lot to them. And it's basically him saying that you have to write through the shit mm. and you have to sit down and you have to work at it. Like you might be able to like write a song and you might be talented at it, but if you don't work at it, you're not going to be great at it. Yeah. And I never really had that idea. I always just thought like when I was a teenager, it's, it's such a bad toxic masculinity vibe. Like when, when you're like 17 and your friend who writes all the songs gets dumped and you're just like going, yes, we're going to get an EP. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But that's the sort of shit that you think when you're, stupid and young yeah um and you think that's how music is written because there needs to be pain or misery or happiness or whatever and sometimes it's actually a bit more methodical than that sometimes you just have to go and write and yeah. do so because i don't i don't i don't really write music i mean like i write really bad adam green daniel johnson ripoff stuff that will never ever hear the light of day <laughs> um but I, I thought that was a good piece of advice yeah definitely and i guess like advice comes in lots of different forms and I think you also touch on in the book that maybe when you're kind of like what you described when you were starting out you had to kind of scrap bits of advice and information from other people do you think there's this nature of some people thinking like you said those kind of boardroom people mm. kind of delivering this advice out as if this is what is going to work for you and it's not necessarily always the case do you think you've got to take everything with a bit of a pinch I think of salt everything needs to be malleable especially in the music industry like there's there's absolutely no one road to success and this book this book will like is not like a here's how to get famous mm. thing because like the music industry you have to adapt and change with how it adapts and changes, like what you might have done, what might have worked for a band last week won't work for a band this week. Uh, you know, like just because social media and streaming and everything is just moving so fast and dynamically. Um, like we, we, when you start out, you'll probably write down, go, oh, okay, this is what I want to do. This is my year plan. Like it would be like, okay, write the EP, um, you know, get the artwork done, get the music videos done, blah, blah, blah. Like there's certain things that will all, you'll always have to do. Yeah. But actually how you go about it, you, you almost need to be a little bit smarter these days. Yeah. And I don't, I think I'm not the person to sit here and give advice on social media mm-hmm. or, or how you release stuff. But there's plenty of good stuff in the book. But like even the book is is like a phone it's like out of date as soon as it comes out you know yeah yeah Um, it's 100% one of those things and I guess even though nowadays than like 20 years ago there's more methods to put your music out there it's so much louder and it's so much harder to cut through that's it I was I was doing an event in Leeds I was was speaking at an event in Leeds and there was a um one of the the like students she was like manning the the merch desk for me and she was like reading through bits and pieces and she wrote music and I couldn't believe it. Like she, she, she was like going. She was like, "I'm not putting my my music on Spotify. I'm not putting my music on Apple Music or or Deezer or whatever." I was like, "What?" I was like, "What? Why?" <laughs> and she was like, "That's selling art." And I was like, "Do you have your music on SoundCloud?" And and she was like, "Yeah." And I was like, "Well, that's well, that, that's exactly the same thing except on Spotify and Apple. If it goes well, you'll get paid." Mm. And she was like, "Well, no, but it's selling art to do that." I was like, how do you expect people to listen to your music? And she was like, well, I don't know, maybe we like physical. And so I was like, but nobody will buy physical if they can't if they Try ca- can't yeah. get into your, your music. And I eventually like talked her into the fact. I was just like, spot look at Spotify and Apple as like HMV or like Rough Trade or like any record shop out there. That's the digital record shop, and your 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 music is in it. Mm. And she was like, "Oh right, okay." <laughs> I just could, but like, you can't overestimate. Like, some people don't 
get into writing music to be into the to get into the music industry. The music industry is a bullshit by, by, byproduct for creatives that mm. have amazing ideas and amazing stories to tell, but have to put up with all the bullshit to get it out there. Yeah. So what has I think I asked you this just before we sat down because we're sitting in Rough Trade East and we're currently sold out of the book. But more are coming in. Yes. But I wanted to know what the reception's been like from maybe colleagues and industry people, but also wider than that from bands, from fans. Mm. Um, so like the, the book came out, I think it's like, what, 16th of May, two weeks ago? That's mad, it sold out in two weeks. <laughs> I'm really happy about that. Um, the, the, uh, like it's been really good from from bands. Like... I know I didn't write it with music people in the music industry in mind. I wrote it for like what I used to say to anybody that I did interviews with. I was like, imagine you're speaking to your 16, 17 year old cousin and they're just starting out. Yeah. So like it has that sort of like baseline level. Um, and yeah, people are really getting into it. Like people are, are, are um, there's a lot of Instagram stories of people sitting on beaches and like on the back of tour buses and stuff mm. reading it. Mm. And there's bands that are way bigger than you would think reading it as well that you would think you don't need to read this yeah. <laughs> like, I did a podcast with Pete Doherty and his manager took a copy of it because I'm gonna have a read of that yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's it, it's crazy like it I, I it's, it's a little bit embarrassing because my name's all over it and it makes it look like I'm some sort of making myself into some sort of like a Buddha or something um but when people actually read it and sort of give it a go, I think it's, I think it's yeah. go, going quite well. Yeah. I haven't had actually any negative feedback yet, but then, like, who knows what people are saying. <laughs> but then you are this, like, perfect medium for all these people to kind of feed into because if it just one band did it, it would probably be based on their experience, whereas you've corroborated, yeah, like, a I lot Yeah, I suppose of, with the label and things. stuff, I've, I've seen so many... I've been a part of so many people's careers mm. and I've, I've seen it from different ways, like... You know, like putting out uh, bands like Rap, like Rap Boy, and like In Heaven was completely different to putting out like the artists that we've got now. So you you see the struggles in in, in different ways. Mm. Do you have a a favorite success story? Obviously, you're hugely influential at Radio One, and you for music discovery primarily. Is there like a favorite successful story from your time there, or just generally in the last like I don't know ten years? Yeah, my my favorite one would be um, would be Soak. Okay. Because we kind of almost brought each other through, really, to a certain extent. Like when I was starting to do the radio uh, back in two thousand and eleven, maybe two thousand and ten. Um, I I was it was before I was even broadcasting. Really, I was just a sort of. Uh, t-boy and dog's body i would just i'd basically do anything that anybody yeah. else didn't want to yeah. do <laughs> and um i used to listen through to the bbc music introduce and uploader which is like a if you've never heard of it before it's like a portal for music where you can upload your music and it ends up getting played on the bbc so if you upload it it could end up getting played in radio one or you could play a festival or whatever i'm not gonna give it the big sell because i'm not on there right <laughs> now but it is it is it is invaluable if you make music and are from the uk there's so many people from Ireland are like trying to like go, how do we get on it? I was like, you can't. That's kind of just a UK thing. Oh, no. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so like I heard a track of hers and it was so scratchy. It was literally recorded into like a laptop, like the one you've got in front of you. And you can write a little bit about it. And I was like, I, I was listening to it. It was very twee. And I was like, I'm really into this. I was like in a mad Bell and Sebastian phase about, around <laughs> about that time. And... 
I was like, oh, this is brilliant, but the sound quality is so super shit. Like, it's got a, like a loud buzz going through the whole whole of it. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it just said underneath it going, sorry about the sound quality, but I didn't want to wake my mum and dad. Oh. Right? And I was just like, oh, my God, my heart is melting reading <laughs> this, but my heart is melting as much um, here in the track. Um, so we did something we'd never, ever done before. We downloaded it and sent it off to our engineer friend who worked outside the BBC. And we asked him if he could take the hiss out of it and if he could polish it up. So we've never, like, you know, we've never, ever, ever done that. I can't, I mm. can't, don't, can't ever think of that ever happening before. And we got them to polish it up and we played it on air. And there was no information about who they were or anything. And I thought it was like a a boy. I thought it was yeah. like a young a young kid who, like a young dude that like hadn't gone through puberty yet because like his voice hasn't broke. Yeah. So I went, went on air and like said it was this young dude from Derry about two or three times over <laughs> over three weeks until I got like a cease and desist from the <laughs> mum going, this is... This is Brady. This is this is like you know this is a woman. This is Brady. Oh, yeah. So I, I ended like yeah ended up playing it quite a lot and then like um, yeah I just like, absolutely adore Soak. Mm. I remember like my my label at the time was really like trying to like sign Soak to to our label and we got got our eye wiped by by Rough Trade. Yeah. <laughs> <you did. laughs> yeah. But to be fair, I'm I'm happy enough because like it's a good good place for an artist like such as her. So um, I've got like a deep affinity with with Bridie and um, yeah we, we've like stayed really good friends ever since and she's just put out her um, she's just put out her second album which is called Grim Town which yes, I'm, I'm sure yes. is pride of place here in Rough Trade yes it was it was one of our favourites when it came out for sure well thank you so much for chatting to me I think we're going to play out with that very song but I also wanted to mention that some proceeds from the book go to help help musicians. Help musicians UK. Yeah, yeah, just just yeah, because like help, help musicians UK have supported the book, um, and they have been they've been absolutely great. Like I wouldn't have been able to get the book out without them. So I I just kind of want to raise awareness for for what they do as well, because like for for hearing protection for like emotional problems, stress problems, money problems, like mental health problems like there is actually a charity out there that is willing to put the arm around um mm. around musicians like I, I mean it's pretty much ron seal help musicians it's, it <laughs> helps musicians mm. and if you don't know much about them you should really go onto their website and just spend half an hour trolling around it because there might be something that you might be like oh okay right i get this yeah well thank you so so much for chatting to us the book is obviously out now. You can get it at roughtrade.com. You can also get it at Rough Trade Nottingham, Bristol, West and East. Don't think you can get it at Rough Trade NYC just yet, but maybe we'll sort something out for yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. I'll, I'm going to, I'm going to like... US fans. I'm going to put, I live in, I live by the sea in Brighton. I'm just going to put it out on like a, a yes, raft. Yes, And just raft it over. Yeah, maybe in like a giant glass bottle and then <laughs> just wash ashore in Brooklyn and people can grab it. Amazing. Phil, thank you so, so much and congratulations again and we'll see you soon. Thank you so much. Everybody wants you Not me today Cause I'm done Everybody loves you Not me, no way I don't work that way Cause I was built from concrete Cause I don't hurt
The person you have dialed can't take your call now. At the tone, please record your message. When you have finished recording, simply hang up or press the pound key for further options. Hey guys, it's me, George, blowing up your voicemail again. Giving you a shout, letting the UK brethren know about what's going down here, Rough Trade NYC, the mean streets of Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Let's kick it off talking about our Rough Trade uh, staff pick of the week. I'm going to give a little love to Tommy. He picked out a record by Dead. It's called Water. Dead spelled D-E-H-D because the kids spell stuff crazy these days. Um, he described it as, uh, sometimes I'm reminded of Velvet Underground, other times a sincere directness of Twilly-esque power pop greats, but it's its own thing. You know, Tommy knows what he's talking about if he's referencing Dwight Twilly and a staff pick right up. The guy knows his stuff, and he's right about this one. This is a, definitely a summer record I recommend it to. And what do you know, Rough Trade has it on an exclusive Rough Trade pressing on subway bump yellow vinyl because nothing can be just yellow anymore um you can pick that up via the website we even still have some autographed copies floating around from the time they um they stopped by the store to play about a week or so ago it's a great record another uh, exclusive coming out i gotta tell you guys all about this one we just announced this week the new jason record she's back folks and we have a very special Cloudy clear vinyl pressing, only 300 copies being made. I know everybody loved the last album, Everybody Works. Everybody loved, Everybody Works. And we're going to see if everybody loves this new one. It's called Anak Co. And it's up for pre-order. You should, you know, throw one of those bad boys in your shopping cart. That's all I'm saying. While you're at it, throw in a Rough Trade slip mat, you know, something to put it on. Uh, you should check that out. What else is going on? Oh, we just had a nice little visit from the UK's own Nigel. He came out, swing by the New York store, wish us well. We had a very special outing. We got to go to Electric Lady Studios, the historic um, Jimi Hendrix-founded studio. So many great things have been recorded there. Bowie recorded Fame. Stevie Wonder did a mess of records. It was amazing. I can't tell you why we were there. Okay, I cannot tell you why we were there. Nigel was recording a solo record. Okay, I'm going to just leak that little bit of info. Don't tell anybody. Don't worry, guys. We're sending Nigel back. We can only take about five or six days of him. Um, I mean, we love the guy. But uh, we know you miss him, so we're going to send him back nicely. And uh, that's about it for the little scoop over here, Rough Trade NYC. Next time when I call, can you pick up, please? Love you guys. Bye. <laughs>
That was JSOM and Superbike. And before that, you heard Soak and Everybody Loves You. Thank you so, so much to Phil for chatting to me. And nice one, George, for the voicemail. I'll try and get to the phone next week. So that's it for episode 62. To close out the show today, remembering a legend. Malcolm John Rabanak Jr., a.k.a. Dr. John, sadly passed away last week, aged 77. Famed as a songwriter, singer and pianist, he was closely identified with the music of New Orleans from where he was born and was prominent in mixing up blues, jazz and R&B. This was a guy who had an incredibly colourful career and was unique in so, so many ways. Um, I strongly recommend you go listen to the records, read the obituaries. It's just really fascinating stuff. Um, I'm going to play out with a personal favourite of mine. So when I was a kid, I'd watched this really bad VHS recording of Scorsese's film, The Last Waltz, uh, the film that documented the band's 76 farewell concert. So included in it was Dr. John performing Such a Night and my brother and I were absolutely fascinated by it because he was such a character Um, and also because we were just convinced he was singing Sunday night so we'd always kind of sing Sunday night on Sunday night. Many years later it was until I realised it wasn't actually Sunday night, it was such a night. But anyway, it's so great and it's just always stuck with me. So RIP Dr. John and um, yeah, I'll catch you next week. You all know the doctor? Dr. John, Mac Rebenak. Come on, Mac. It's in thankfulness to the band and all the fellas. Two, three, four, one. Such a night. Under the moonlight Such a night Such a night Got to steal away The time seemed right Baby, your eyes met mine At a glance
Walter. Rough Trade Radio. Reviews and subscriptions help to support what we do. So if you like what you hear, then please rate us on iTunes.